world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard, fear no evil. Get yours today, only at LipstickBodyguard.com. What's four foot nine inches tall, clad in plaid, and sitting on your doorstep with a note pinned to it? Give up? Surprise! Now she's your problem. This week on Parents Are Hard to Raise, Granny Dumping. Welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. So I was having lunch with a friend of mine the other day. Um, he's an ER physician. And he was telling me a story of um, this daughter came into the ER with her elderly mom. And he said the daughter was telling him that um, her mom was weak and she wasn't drinking much or eating and she was lethargic and she said, I'm, you know, having trouble getting her to eat and drink. And, um, you know, so he said, you know, I, I had her records in front of me and she's in our system, he said, and she has a lot of chronic conditions. She has COPD and osteoporosis and early dementia, diabetes. And he said, and, you know, she had been in like about a month and a half ago for um, pneumonia. So he said, you know, I ran all these tests and just found that she had mild dehydration. He said, so I said to the daughter, oh, we'll just give her, you know, some IV fluids and you'll be able to take her home. He's like, and the daughter, I, you know, the mom, you know, he said, you could see like she was relieved. Her face kind of lit up. He said, and the daughter, she had like tears in her eyes. And he said, she kept saying to me, well, am I, are you sure? You know, maybe she has pneumonia again. And he's like, no, you know, she doesn't. And she said, you know, well, it's hard for me to get her here, hard for me to get her in the car, and I don't want to have to bring her home. And then you call me and tell me to bring her back. He says, no, I'm, I'm sure. He said, and I'm, you know, as she's talking to me, I'm thinking, you know, she wants me to admit her. And she said, are you sure you ran all the tests? I can leave her here because I, I have to run home and I could come back, you know, or maybe you should just keep her overnight to make sure, make sure she's okay. He's like, and I'm thinking, she's going to do a granny dump on me. And I'm, I said to him, oh, my God, you know, I haven't heard that term in years. He's like, yeah, well, in the last two months, in the last month, I've had two. He goes, it's making a comeback. And I'm thinking, what? You know, so granny dumping, it, it, you know, you first heard that term in the early 80s. And it means exactly, you know, what the term implies. It's abandoning an elderly person in a public place. You're dumping them in a public place, a hospital, nursing home. And it's done by a relative, usually. I'll never forget, you know, my first job just out of school, I get this call from a hospital um, 
ER doctor and he says to me that we have this elderly patient and we have to get her placed. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, give me her information. You know, what's her name? What's, you know, uh, you know, her insurance? What's wrong with her? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm asking him all these questions. And he's like, well, we don't have that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, it was a granny dumping. And I'm like, what? You know, I, I don't know what that is. He says, you know, positive taillight sign, pack suitcase syndrome. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I never heard these terms. I'm like, what? He's like, we found her outside and sitting in her wheelchair outside the emergency room with a suitcase on, on her lap with a note pinned to her robe saying, take care of me. So I'm like, well, who would do that? You know, what? What does she say? You know, ask her, who left her there? What What did she say? He's like, she's confused. He said, we can't get any information out of her, and she has to be placed. We can't keep her here. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, who would do that? He's like our family. I'm like, well, why would they do that? And, you know, of course, throughout my career, you know, you, you find that families will do that. People will do that. You know, I, I've I've seen families, um, you know, bring somebody to the ER and say, well, he's been wandering, he's confused, you know, and, and uh, you know, but I have to go, I have to go to work and they leave a name and a phone number, you know, they fill out forms and an address. And then you find out, you know, that you, you run the, the poor guy through these tests and you find out that there really isn't anything wrong with him, but the the phone number isn't a real phone number or the address or something and they you know and people think well i i brought you know i brought him to the hospital or a nursing home and that he'll be safe and somebody'll care for him and you know the phenomenon isn't new in japan centuries ago they even created a word please people from japan excuse i'm going to say the word but please excuse cuz i'm probably not saying it properly ubaste where it translates to elderly woman thrown away or discarded. So abandoning an old woman, and hence, you know, we translated it as granny dumping. And supposedly the practice existed in Japan centuries ago when, um, you know, poor families had a sick or senile elder and they would bring them to mountaintops or some other remote desolate place and they'd leave them there to die because the family couldn't afford to care for them anymore. In the early 90s, here in the United States, there was approximately 70,000 elderly abandoned by family, not able to care for them or unwilling to care for them or to pay for their care. So, you know, when I started to research it, and my friend was right, the incidents of granny dumping are making a comeback. In the, U in the U.S., in Japan, Australia, New Zealand. And so I said to my friend, well, why do you think it's making a comeback? You know, and he's like, well, you know, people are living longer and they have all these chronic conditions and kids can't take care of them. They're not near. They move. They're working. You know, you can't cope with caring with them and can't afford it. And the dementia, and baby, 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 you know. And so I said to him, well, you know, you mentioned about the patient. I, what did you notice about the daughter? He's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, what did what 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 did you notice about her? And he's like, well, she answered questions. You know, she filled in the gaps about her mom, you know, her history. You know, I had some of the information, you know, because she's been here before. I said, yeah, but did, 
what did you think about the daughter? What did you see? And he couldn't really tell me anything. And I said, well, you, you mentioned to me that she had tears in her eyes when you said that, you know, she could take her mom home. So he's like, well, yeah, she probably doesn't want to care for her mother anymore. You know, it's a lot. And I said, well, there's lies, therein lies the problem. You know, I said to him, you're, you're an emergency room doctor. So you, your job is, you know, the patient comes in, you have to deal with the patient. You have to deal with the emergency. But, you know, I always say you have to look at the whole picture. You have to look at the family. If the illness doesn't just affect the patient. But, of course, you're in an emergency room. I said, but somebody has to deal with the, the the caregiver, the daughter, you know, in this case, the distressed person in the emergency room wasn't the patient. It was the daughter. So, you know, I said to him, I know your job, you know, you have to deal with the emergencies, but what do you think? He goes, well, you know, I guess she couldn't, she can't deal with taking care of her mom. I said, well, you know, I'm sure she loves her mom, but she probably, you know, is at a point where she's overwhelmed. I said, how did she look to you? Do you remember? Did she look worn out, tired? You know, was she anxious? I said, I, I, I can probably say she her, probably her appearance, she probably didn't take care of herself. You know, she probably just was rushed to get her mom to the, to the emergency room. And, you know, I said she probably was hoping her mom would be admitted, maybe just for one night, maybe just to give her a break, you know. And, he says to me, well, you know, she has to get help for her, for her mom. I said, yeah, but, you know, it's not as easy as it sounds. And it's not as easy for people to let go or to be able to do that. Sometimes, you know, it sounds like, okay, this is just what we have to do. It's very easy on paper to say, yep, these are the steps we have to follow and this is what we have to do. But, you know, there's emotion in everything. You know, she may not think, Maybe no one ever offered to tell her about any kind of help, or maybe she thinks they can't afford it, or maybe, you know, maybe somebody said, listen, you know, if you can't afford it, you have to fill out these reams of papers to try to get your mom, you know, any, to try to get your mom covered for any kind of help. You know, maybe she doesn't think her mom can qualify, or you have to remember an over, overwhelmed caregiver, they're reluctant a lot of times just to accept help, you know. She may feel people are judging her because she brought her mom in for dehydration and maybe she's not handling it well or it's a failure to ask for help. Or if she does accept help, then she feels guilty, you know, about taking some time for herself and that just worsens the burnout. So, you know, he said to me, well, what do I do? You know, what are we supposed to do? I said, well, you know, you have to kind of, I know in the emergency situation, but, you know, do you have someone, you know, if the patient's going in for tests, having tests, maybe then stop and talk to the caregiver. I know you might have to move on to another patient, but maybe can you take two minutes just to talk to the caregiver? And you not only want to get the history from them, but you want to just see, you can sense if someone's overwhelmed, see how they sound, look at them. And, you know, you can 
you can just touch her arm and say, you know, it's probably very difficult to take care of mom, but you're doing a great job. And don't, I, I said to him, I bet you said, gee, I'd like to see mom drink more because mom's dehydrated. I said, but did you tell her how she can maybe get mom to drink more? Because she said to you, I can't get mom to drink. You know, I can't get her to eat. So, you know, there's maybe suggestions that you can make. And if you're really, you know, strapped for time and you have to get on, to another emergency, you know, you want to have someone come talk to her, but don't say to her, I'm going to have a social worker come talk to you because people are going to freak out. Social worker, you know, it just, they think, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. Oh my God, mom's dehydrated. You know, it's my fault. You know, just say to her, you know, I, um, I have to touch, touch her touch her arm, you know, and say, listen, you're doing a great job. Say, but you know what? I have, I have someone who, you know, her name is Mary and she can come and maybe she can suggest some other things on how she can help you, how she can help you maybe to help mom. And because you know what? She might just need someone to talk to, but you have to, we have to look at them too, you know, Maybe Mary, the social worker, is going to suggest, um, you know, she hire a a gerontologist or she talk to. You have to really realize we want to get you before you're overwhelmed. There's always someone you could talk to, always someone you can consult, always someone you can ask for help or where do you go for help. So... Before we come back and I tell you one other thing I told my friend, I just wanted to talk to you about something that can help you or help someone that you may know. I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only five feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her six foot four 250-pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless-looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000-pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you, in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. Yo, 
You're listening to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. I want to welcome our new listeners from Morocco, specifically Casablanca, Tangier, and Nador, Burkina Faso from West Africa, Russian Federation and China, and Poland, specifically Warsaw, Lubin, and Krakow. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to have listeners from everywhere. This is wonderful. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Here's the thing. What else I told my friend? I said to him, so you're a doctor. You know, why did you become a doctor? I said, and of course I'm answering the questions. I'm not even letting him talk. I said, I bet you became a doctor because you want to help people, right? You want to help people and you want to help each and every person. And he's like, yeah, sure. Yes, that's why. So I said, so part of helping this patient or some of your patients is helping their family as well. So in this instance, you have to help her daughter as well as the patient because her daughter is part of her care. So the illness doesn't just affect the patient. So I said, you know, just try to, if you can, pay attention to the person bringing in the patient as well. So he's like to me, geez, now I kind of get the granny dumping. You know, these people are overwhelmed. I'm like, yeah. I said, but, you know, it's not your fault because you're, you're, you're dealing with the emergency, but that other person is kind of like, a shadow in the background. And so you're not, you know, you're not looking at them and you're not really talking to them that much except about the patient. So, so kind of um, related to that, it's been on my mind lately, you know, all the tough things that we have to face in life at work or, you know, at home. And how do we deal with these things? How do we cope? And I guess, What prompted me thinking about this was I received an email from um, Celia, who's a social worker, and she said she's been a social worker for 25 years, and she's been, um, she's done different aspects of social work in a hospital, you know, in in a nursing home, um, and um, she mentioned other places, other places as well, I think DIFAS and and different things like that, and she said, I'm just... um, It's getting to me. She said, you know, I'm thinking I have to do something else. It's just, you know, I just feel the negativity and the sadness and the heartbreak of the job. She said, it's just getting to me. I'm just emotionally tired. And she said, and then I get home and I I just don't want to talk, you know, or I don't want to listen to anything. She said, and of course, you know, I have a family life as well. And she, she said that there's just less joy and happiness in in what I'm doing and she said and if it is there maybe I'm just not seeing it so you know she said how do we endure the difficulties of our jobs you know in healthcare, you know or social work or really you know any any job and I was just saying to somebody today you know I said boy like I've had a week and it's just where there wasn't any good outcomes, you know, I mean, we solved problems, you know, I, 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 I did things and I solved problems and I helped people, but it was just, you know, um, 
a week of, you know, illness or death or hospital or nursing home or uh, hospice, you know, or financial problems or things like that. And I, you know, some days and some weeks, I, I feel drained. I, I you know, I, I do, Celia. And I feel like, you know, I can't talk about one more thing or one more problem. But then I try to, because I, I have this uh, quote on my desk, and it says, Every time you find some humor in a difficult situation, you win. And I don't know who said that because it's anonymous. But so I try to find humor in something. Um, Even Freud said humor offers us a healthy means of coping with life's stress. But we have to actively use our sense of humor in dealing with the hassles and stresses in life to get the coping benefits. So... Because you could have a good sense of humor, but when things go wrong and your sense of humor is nowhere to be found, it doesn't, it doesn't help. You have to make an effort to actively use your, your sense of humor to deal with stress. So, you know, if you find, you know, the funny side of things when you're in a good mood, that doesn't help. You have to be able to do it even when you have the tough days. And that's hard. But... You have to work at it. Studies show that, you know, people who can access a sense of humor in the midst of stress are much more resilient than the rest of us. They're emotionally more flexible. They can bend without breaking in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. If your parents had a good sense of humor in stressful times, that probably um, helps you. You probably have some of those qualities within you. I know... um, you know, my mom usually always is finding something funny. It doesn't matter what it is. And, you know, for me, I probably, I, I think I have to refine and strengthen that because I don't always have that. My brother probably has that more than I do. You know, and I I, I had mentioned I had an aunt who, uh, my Aunt Emily, she always found humor in everything. She always made you laugh. She was always up no matter what. I mean, she, she had a a brain aneurysm. I mean, and she was um, in in a, in a coma for quite a while. And then she came out of it and she couldn't walk. You know, she was, she had to learn, she had to go to rehab and she had to learn how to walk all over again. And um, she still found humor. She did, you know, you'd go see her in the rehab and she was laughing and she was making jokes as usual. And, you know, so you have to always try to find that sense of humor. And if you ask physicians or nurses or even um, policemen or women or firemen or women or EMS workers to describe their sense of humor, most would probably say it's dark and it's sick. You know, they share humor that the average person would think is probably inappropriate or insensitive. So why would they have this crude sense of humor? But because they confront, you know, life-threatening tragedies every day. So for them, humor is a great tool in letting go of those you know, difficult emotions that accompany the work that they're exposed to, you know, the serious illness or the death and dying. So humor and laughter help them cope with the constant stress of their jobs. They provide a release. Laughter, think of laughter as an emotional cleansing. And, you know, 
they'll if you talk to doctors and nurses or you hear their humor sometimes that you know you're you're thinking oh my gosh you know you'll find that it's cold or morbid or unfeeling but it helps them fight that burnout and keeps them focused to deal with the next crisis so you have to be sure to have some joy in your life every day and humor and laughter can give you a way to create that joy so always find something to laugh about you know like I have Sundays to just kind of I just want to just lay on my couch and I say to my husband we have to watch funny movies we have to watch comedies and you know sometimes something says it's a comedy but it isn't but I find when we find you know the best the, the comedies that really make you laugh you feel better after a good laugh you know you laugh more, you, you have that, if you have that belly laugh, that deep laugh, you know, you'll notice that it produces relaxation automatically and naturally. Think about it and look at it next time you really are laughing for a period of time. You have a good long laugh. See if you feel relaxed and less tense. And that's what I try to do on a, on a Sunday because that does help. There's this, um, you've, I don't know if you've heard about it, you know, this humor in hospitals movement and um, but you've probably not been to a hospital who has a humor program because there's not as many hospitals as you would like to have them. And I guess it's becoming popular because, you know, hospitals are fighting to have patients have a good experience. They want, you know, patients, they want to be more patient centered. And so they're realizing that you know, there's a therapeutic value in humor and they're trying to give patients what they want and a more personalized relationship. And if you have, you know, the staff that um, adds humor to their encounters with patients, you know, that helps build relationships. You know, people enter a hospital, they're stressed, they're anxious, and humor can ease the tension and help the patients cope. So, um, you know, some, some hospitals are saying, oh my gosh, if, you know, our staff shows a sense of humor, that's very unprofessional. But patients, patients welcome humor and laughter during a hospital stay. You know, you have to remember people have to be real and, and, and you have to, um, em- embrace humor because people will feel, feel more relaxed. Sometimes hospitals use volunteers. Um, they dress up as clowns in visit rooms or they have a humor cart, you know, where they have comic books or they wheel this into the patient's room and they have props and different things like that. Or they have rooms that are devoted to humor where people who can, can walk into the room can go and, and, um, maybe watch a movie or something. And now it's even gotten to the point where they're they're thinking, okay, if humor has the power to reduce, you know, the patient's tension and anxiety and help them help them deal with maybe their life circumstances from this serious illness or promote healing, now how can we get the maximum benefit out of it? We're going to now, instead of saying, okay, you can go into this room and watch, you know, a movie, we're going to let the patient pick the movie so that they, it's what the patient feels will make them more relaxed and laugh. Patients say that humor and shared laughter helps them helps raise their spirits, take their mind off their illness and their problems. So we need to find more humor in everyday life. You have to seek out humor more often. You have to laugh more and you have to laugh that good belly laugh until you feel good.
And here's something that you might not have thought of. Is being labeled lazy a compliment? Could laziness not be a bad thing? Could we accept it as a good trait? Well, you know, when you think about laziness, you think, well, it's got a negative connotation. It's, it's synonymous with lack of motivation, somebody who just doesn't want to do anything. You know, it's a person who doesn't do anything even though they have the ability to do it. So in our minds, laziness is seen as negative. But can it be a positive trait? Well, laziness gives you a chance to just be. It gives us a chance to just relax and be without the rest, without thinking of, okay, I got to do the next thing on my list. Laziness can make you more efficient because you want to find, you, if you're lazy, you want to spend less time on a particular task. So you want to find the, out the best way to do it and the quickest way. Some of the best inventors admit that their creations were born out of wanting to spend less time on doing things. Benjamin Franklin said, I was the laziest man in the world. I invented all those things to save myself from toil. Laziness can make you more lighthearted. You can be more lighthearted about who you are. Knowing you're lazy and being able to laugh about it, it's a great step in acceptance, self-love, and you're laughing. <laughs> laziness births creation. Because once our minds are kind of relaxed, they open up to maybe more inspired new ideas and actions. We, want our, we let our mind wander and daydream. So we may see things differently and look at new ways of doing things. And here's one you don't think about. So when you're lazy, you might focus on smaller jobs and put off the bigger ones. Usually we were like, we got to get that big job done and the more important tasks and the smaller ones get put off. But laziness maybe turns that around. So you ignore the big, the big jobs and you focus on the smaller ones. So maybe it's a productive way of getting things done. You start out with the smaller ones and it clears the way to get the big stuff done. And if you do stuff at the last minute, you have greater focus because you usually think, well, if a person's lazy, they maybe are a procrastinator. So putting things off at the last minute, it kind of makes you focus on getting that tax task done so you're conscious of it. So maybe laziness shouldn't be seen as being that negative. And my survival tip of the week, the week of the week, sorry, I'm talking too much. So do your own version of hot and cold hydrotherapy. So at the end of your shower, blast yourself with cold water for 30 seconds. Then blast yourself with hot water for 30 seconds. And when you go to finish, blast yourself with cold water again. The rapid changes in temperature will open up capillaries, increase blood flow, and stimulate, stimulate your body and mind, and even detoxify the body. It can even boost your energy. So there you have it. You want to laugh more, find your sense of humor, and change the way you shower. If this week's show was helpful to you, or you know someone who would be helped by it, please tell them about it. They can subscribe to the show using iTunes. You can find the links to the topics we just talked about in the show notes for today's episode, episode 49, at parentsarehardtoraise.org. Please keep those emails coming in. I'm here to help you with anything you're struggling with. Email me at diane at parentsarehardtoraise.org. You can reach me through my website, dianeberardi.com. 
You can follow me on Facebook at Parents Are Hard to Raise Podcast, and I tweet at Jersey Elder Care. And please remember, Parents Are Hard to Raise is now syndicated on iHeartRadio. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a countersink media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music LLC, New York, New York, under license of Broadcast Music Incorporated. Thank you so much for listening. See you again next week.